From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. Ted Nisi will join me on the second half. This week, a conversation with Congressman David Cicilline. An important note to our viewers, my Zoom interview with the congressman was recorded Thursday morning. You'll hear me ask him a question about the allegations against Joe Biden. Since then, Biden has given an interview about the accusation. Here now is my conversation with Congressman David Cicilline. Uh, let's start right off with the news uh, this morning. Um, boy, another 3.8 million people filed for unemployment last week in the United States, pushing unemployment to over 30 million Americans. An economist, uh, Congressman, think it, it could be past 50 million people. When you think about the scale of this crisis we're facing, what would you compare it to? Well, I think, uh, as your question suggests, we've actually never had uh, this kind of a crisis in our lifetime. And uh, this pandemic is presenting extraordinary challenges, not only to the public health system and to people's anxiety about their own well-being, but the economic implications. And so I think what we have to be prepared to do is continue to respond regularly to this pandemic. Uh, we're going to have to be back for a fifth uh, relief package that I think has to include uh, recognition that unemployment will continue to be a problem. So extended benefits, uh, making certain we're doing recurring cash payments to families, additional support for small businesses, additional support for our hospitals and first responders and frontline healthcare workers with additional you know, hazard pay or additional compensation. I think the message is this is gonna be a long-term economic recovery. It's going to require government action over an extended period of time and focusing on workers, small businesses and families as our first priority should guide all of that work. Talk to me about process, though, Congressman. Are you worried about getting that fifth economic package done? House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer unexpectedly, I would say, announced this week the House will not reconvene due to health concerns. There's been a lot of criticism about that. How would that impact what you want to get done if the House isn't going to reconvene? Well, you know, the work is underway. The committee chairs uh, are shaping the fourth or fifth relief package right now, what we're referring to as CARES 2. And so that work is well underway. Uh, I think the decision was made after the recommendation of the House position that it wasn't an appropriate time to come back into DC due to the current conditions in the District of Columbia. We should continue to be guided by good science and good recommendations from public health officials, but we're working. But when that bill is ready for a vote, I expect that we will come back and vote as quickly as it is ready. Uh, we have moved every couple of weeks in terms of COVID-19 response. It's been very bipartisan. I expect that we're going to move quickly as soon as this bill is done. Uh, and we're going to have to figure out new ways to do it. We had a new voting system. I joked we felt like senators. Our vote took so long because we did it in phases based on our last name. So we have to do some smart planning to do it, but we have to be certain we're getting the work done for the American people. What do you think about the idea of voting by proxy? I think it's a, a good solution uh, that will allow people who can come to Washington to go uh, and vote by proxy means they simply will be allowed to vote as they're directed by the other member of Congress. Not that they're going to have a bunch of votes they're in charge of, but basically you vote yes, you vote no. And so they would be simply doing the mechanics for a member. We have the Rules Committee looking at remote voting, proxy voting, a number of ways for committees to do their work. I think we're going to have to figure out uh, how we can conduct our hearings and our markups in committee in this new environment and do it in a safe way, but a way that's transparent to the American people and a way that the public can view it and participate as appropriate. And uh, 
I think there's a lot of work to be done to adjust to this kind of new set of circumstances. We're talking on a Thursday morning, and earlier this week, the whole delegation uh, had a call with Governor Gina Raimondo, I believe it was Wednesday, and on the call, um, the delegation suggested that she has unilateral power over the $1.25 billion in federal COVID relief funds. I don't need to tell you, the General Assembly is not going to like that. Wouldn't you be complaining if uh, President Trump, say, had this much unilateral power over that much money? Well, I mean, don't forget, this emergency stabilization funding was created so that governors had the ability to respond immediately to the public health implications of this pandemic. And so we really wanted to ensure that governors had you know, flexibility and could make quick judgments to disperse this money immediately in response to needing to build a field hospital or provide additional support to uh, hospital personnel or uh, respond to public safety concerns that arise out of the pandemic. So this is not funding which is allowed to replace lost revenue. I think we're going to fight very hard to provide additional support uh, for first responders and police and fire and healthcare personnel, state and local government aid in CARES too. Um, some of that, I hope, will be to allow states and municipalities to replace what they've lost in revenue. And that, of course, would go through the normal appropriation process. This is an emergency relief package that is designed to give governors, whether you're a Republican or Democratic governor who's charged with uh, hand, you know, managing the emergency public health epidemic to be able to respond quickly. Uh, and obviously there has to be transparency and there have to be a number of systems to be sure that the, the, that the governors are meeting the statutory requirement, that it be necessary uh, in response to the pandemic. But we, we think flexibility and speed matter in a public health crisis. And I think that's why the intention was to give governors as much flexibility to, to spend that money as quickly as possible to protect the health and well-being of their residents. I want to talk about the budget gaps you just raised uh, in your answer there with uh, cities and towns. I, I think you probably heard that Warwick, the mayor there, just had to announce some layoffs because of budget gaps. And Providence Mayor Jorge Alorza admitted his budget will have to be overhauled if the city doesn't get federal funds. It sounds like that is something you're looking at as well. Um, you know, do you have a sense as to how much funding cities and towns could expect and what kind of strings attached would there be? Would they be able to use this money to close their budget deficits? Well, that's definitely what the House Democrats are fighting for. Look, we recognize that this pandemic has had devastating consequences, not only on state governments, but on local governments as well, as they've seen their re revenues plummet as a lot of economic activity has essentially stopped, which is important. And we've got to make these stay-at-home orders real so we can bend the curve and flatten the curve and, and really begin to defeat this pandemic. So it's the right decisions that mayors and governors are making, but the federal government has to be prepared to help them backfill those revenues. And so, yes, we fought hard to try to get that in this interim relief package. Senator McConnell refused to support it in any way, but we are very committed and cares too to making certain that we help not only states with additional resources, but local governments. And they have to be able to use that money to backfill lost revenues. I mean, think about in the middle of a public health crisis that municipalities are starting to think about having to lay off police and fire and first responders. Some states that have counties, healthcare systems are actually contemplating laying off hospital personnel because of their loss of revenue in the middle of a public health pandemic. It's a 
dangerous idea. We have to be sure they're not forced into that situation. And when Mitch McConnell said, well, you know, states should just go bankrupt, it, it was it demonstrated a fundamental disrespect to the heroes on the front lines of this pandemic all across our country. And, you know, you can't reopen an economy without police and fire and teachers and healthcare workers being able to protect us. So uh, this is a num really number one priority for House Democrats. We're going to demand that this be in CARES too so that we can prevent municipalities like Warwick and Providence from facing unsurmountable financial challenges. We've been uh, talking a lot about you know, uh, how the federal government can help and federal spending. And uh, Congressman, I, we hear a lot from viewers who are worried that trillions of dollars in spending and just printing money, especially from people who lived through the 1970s, uh, they're worried that this is going to set off a huge amount of inflation. Is that a worry for you? Look, I think right now what we have to worry about most importantly is keeping people healthy and alive and defeating this virus and making sure our hospitals have everything they need and our first responders are protected and our nurses and doctors and lab technicians and folks who work in the hospital are protected. I think next we want to protect the economic security of families in our state. And then we're going to have to deal with the long-term implications of having to spend a lot of money to get through this pandemic. But uh, my first priority is keeping people alive, keeping families intact economically, and then we'll have plenty of an opportunity to kind of plan for uh, how we ensure that our economy fully recovers so that revenues continue to grow and we repay whatever money we're spending. But right now, I think our focus has to be on the first two and, and we'll deal with uh, the long-term economic implications when our economy is growing again and people are back to work. I want to ask you a question that, honestly, Congressman, I probably would have asked you first in this interview if it weren't for everything else that's going on, and now it's at the really at the tail end of it. Uh, former aide to, to Joe Biden has accused him of sexual assault. Mr. Biden has remained largely silent about the issue. Does he need to address it head on? Well, I don't know if he's been largely silent. I think he's made it clear that well, through a spokesperson, through a spokesperson, through a spokesperson, they put out statements. Look, but think, does he need to Joe give an interview? Does yeah, he need Joe to address Biden, it? Um, has a, a lifelong career of public service in which he's been an advocate for women. He was the author of the Violence Against Women Act and a number of other pieces of legislation. He was vetted by President Obama to become his vice president. Uh, he has had an incredible uh, career in public service, uh, and he's denied through a spokesperson the, the allegation. Obviously, the, the media has covered this and uh, you know this woman has a right to have her claim heard and the media should cover it carefully. I think he has denied it emphatically through his spokesperson. Um, but you know that's the purpose of a free media and they're gonna cover it. And I, I think there have been efforts by all of the independent media to determine whether or not there's any supporting evidence of this claim and so far none has been found. Uh, I know Joe Biden, I, I certainly take him at his word, but obviously this woman has a right to be heard respectfully and the media I think is reporting on it as they should. If this were a Republican, I think there would be a lot of podium thumping on your end. Is there a different standard here between the two parties? No, I don't think there is. Look, I think you have to look at, you know, a person who makes an allegation like this has a right to be heard and heard respectfully. On the other hand, you have to make a judgment as to whether or not this is a, a, a true allegation. And the, the vice president has denied it. There's uh, several public statements that are different. So look, there's a lot of reasons that the reporters and newspapers and journalists should cover this and, and, and vet it. Uh, but I think you have to also look at uh, the, the 
denial by the vice president, his having been vetted to be vice president, his long career in public service as an advocate for women. And I know Joe Biden, and uh, I accept completely his rejection of this accusation, uh, but it should be reported. She has a right to be heard, uh, but I don't think it's a double standard at all. There's new information out that uh, in the criminal case against former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, who is a Rhode Islander. Uh, documents show an FBI agent may have tried to get Flynn to lie in order to get him charged or fired, according to that FBI agent's notes. You were a defense attorney. At worst, this sounds like entrapment. At best, it seems the investigation against him had an agenda. Do you think he was treated unfairly, Congressman? I don't think he was treated unfairly. I, I, don't, I have not seen the new report that you're referring to, uh, but I have tremendous confidence in the FBI and law enforcement, and I have certainly had a career in which I battled with them, but I have studied uh, their handling of the matters that you're describing, and I'm satisfied that, uh, that they have conducted themselves appropriately. There was an inspector general report which raised some criticism, which I accept and I think is important. But we want the FBI to continue to be the best law enforcement agency in the world and to be respected by the American people. And to the extent there was any misconduct, if there was any, those individuals should be held accountable and uh, appropriately disciplined. Uh, we want to be sure that prosecutions are based on the facts and the evidence and the law and nothing else. You've been toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Department of Justice in a courtroom as a defense attorney, and you're, you're a big civil liberties guy. No concerns about this one at all? No, as I said, I've not seen the report you're referencing today, and I'll look at it carefully. Um, I remain a civil libertarian and always concerned about the constitutional rights of everyone, regardless of what party they belong to. Uh, so I take that seriously, and I take the responsibility of the Judiciary Committee to, to conduct oversight in this area seriously, so I will study the report that you're mentioning, and if I determine uh, that we ought to take action, I will certainly do that. Final question. Uh, you, you know, uh, one of the big parts of any congressional office is constituent services. Um, I know here at Channel 12, we're getting a lot of calls and emails from people. Number one on the list, unemployment. Number two, probably a stimulus. Do you have a sense as to the, the number one, uh, you know, a call to your constituent services is right now? What are you hearing most from people? It's, it's really those three. It's unemployment, uh, concerns about their benefits and whether they're uh, eligible, uh, the stimulus check, you know, and being sure that they receive that. And then the small business, a range of small business uh, programs that are available. Are they applying for the right one? What's their status? So I would say those three are the biggest. And, you know, all of our, all of the offices of the four congressional districts are all fully operational. And I just want to remind your viewers to reach out to us if we can be helpful in any way. I want to say a special thank you to all of my staff who are working incredibly hard in, you know, difficult circumstances and doing it because they know there's a tremendous need out there. So um, reach out to us if we can help in any way. Well, Congressman, uh, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. And hopefully we get to do this in person uh, again soon. Thanks for having me. Stay safe. Again, that interview with Congressman David Cicilline was recorded on Thursday. Since then, Joe Biden has given an interview about the accusation against him. When we come back, we go live to the State House and break down the week in news with politics editor Ted Nisi. Stay with us. You're watching Newsmakers.
Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White. We are going to go live now to the Rhode Island State House, where my colleague and politics editor Ted Nisi is standing by. This is on a Friday, and he's uh, waiting to cover the governor's press briefing, as he does twice a week. Ted, let's begin with this. It was a rocky week for data out of the Department of Health. First, you revealed 86 people who were listed as discharged from the hospital had actually died there, and the hospitalization numbers themselves were off. What, what's going on? Well, in both cases, Tim, um, there's no sign we have of anyone trying to mislead anybody with these numbers explicitly, though I do think in both cases, um, certainly it gave a, an incorrect impression to people at first. It's, it's, it all seems to be related to how the data gets piped into the health department by the hospitals and then how it gets reported out to the public. So on the discharges that were deaths, uh, my now understanding now is the hospitals do code people who die at the hospital as uh, on a what's called a discharge summary. Of course, for the average person like you and me, when we hear someone's discharged, we think it's good news, not that they passed away. Uh, and that's why they were reporting discharges to include hospital fatalities. They're now changing that, they say, to, to be clearer that discharges are people who got out and are hopefully recovering. Uh, though some of the people who get out have also died at home, we know. So it, the data is a bit messy. Then on the number of people in the hospital who have COVID-19, uh, as of Thursday, they've changed the system they're using for the hospitals to report the data into the state from a kind of rudimentary one that they had early on in the crisis to what they say is a more automated computerized system, which now apparently is catching more people who are there for another reason, but have tested positive for COVID-19. So. That's one of the things uh, people need to understand with this. You know, there are the folks who are seen as, as very much a COVID-19 patient. You know, they, they have that respiratory disease caused by the virus. Um, but then we have the people who are sick with something else. Uh, maybe they go to the hospital with, uh, with other issues. Maybe they had a heart attack, whatever. But when they test them, they find, oh, they have COVID-19. Maybe they're even asymptomatic. So those people are now being included in the total, uh, and we added 70 people to the Rhode Island COVID-19 total because of that. So, Ted, it makes me wonder what that all means for the, uh, I'll call it the coveted May 9th date, where maybe the governor might start pulling uh, some of the restrictions that we have, uh, pulling them away. And she has always, from the beginning, correct me if I'm wrong, she's always been focused on the hospitalization numbers. Uh, cases are important, but that was always a moving target. What they really wanted to know was how many people are hospitalized because of COVID-19. Do you have a sense at all if the increase in numbers because of the way they're uh, you know, calculating the data now or the system has changed and the numbers went up, does that change their calculation on that May 9th date? Yeah, and it, that's, it's, it's the big question, Tim, and I did ask the governor's office late Thursday about this, and they said she was aware that they were refining how they collect the data, and they emphasized, you know, she's never promised May 9th that she will list, lift the stay-at-home order. She's just described it as a goal. I suspect that's what she's going to say again later today, Friday, at her news daily briefing. Um, but I think, you know, uh, Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner who's been all over the place as an expert explaining this thing, has said that governors, whether in Rhode Island or Massachusetts or anywhere else, are going to face a tough decision here because we're not seeing a rapid decline in cases, a rapid decline in hospitalizations in Rhode Island, in Massachusetts, in New York. We're seeing a plateau or maybe a, a slow increase. And so they have to make the call of, you know, so much economic damage has already been sustained. Do you start to slowly, hopefully carefully reopen? 
even though you know there's still a lot of sickness out there. Um, but the hospitalization numbers were striking for that reason, Tim, because you, you, you went from seeing what looked like a little bit of a dip last week with a right. little bit up but not much this week to a fairly steady but very gradual, not exponential crazy, but a, a gradual increase in hospitalizations. That's a bit of a different picture. Final question on data here, Ted, just real quick. We're also learning uh, no matter how someone dies, if they were diagnosed with COVID, it is listed as a COVID-associated death, correct? Correct. Yep. Our colleague uh, Eli Sherman actually drilled down on this and shared uh, what he learned with you and I, Tim, earlier in the week that uh, I, I would compare it to what I was explaining before about the new hospitalizations number, which now catches the folks who had something else but also have COVID-19 and they're being counted. That, that's why these deaths, you know, everyone who we say is in the death toll for COVID-19 in Rhode Island has tested positive for COVID-19, but we can't explicitly say that every one of them died due to COVID-19. They have what the doctors call comor comorbidities, meaning they have multiple health problems and maybe it's the, the heart issue they have that, that is what in the end they succumb to, but they have COVID-19 at the same time. And it frankly, Again, I'm not a doctor, but talking to the doctors, it can be hard to tease out exactly which of multiple diseases is the reason someone died. You know, if, that, if, you're, if you're at death's door, literally, um, you know, there's a lot going on, unfortunately, going wrong with your system by that point. There was some uh, activity in the cold halls behind you on Thursday night, a legislative <laughs> task force, uh, which was covered by our own Steph Machado. You can read her story on WPRI.com. The headline out of that was the state has allocated $156 million in federal money so far to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. But uh, Ted, as you read through Steph's story, also important is we're starting to see the General Assembly heat up and they're going to have to tackle head on what will undoubtedly be one of the bleakest budgets in modern history. Absolutely, Tim. I mean, you asked you hit the nail on the head with Congressman Cicilline. I mean, I've talked to a lot of folks about the budget picture this week here at the State House and, and remotely, and it, it's it's very bad. Um, the the Federal Reserve Bank in Boston's talking about over 600 million to 700 something million dollars being the hole in Rhode Island's budget. That's just it's just a massive amount of money in sh such a short amount of time. And there, I think what we're going to see is next Friday, a week from when we're taping, which is uh, May 12th ish. I, I'd, I'd have to double check. But they're, they're going to see the revenue. May 8th, thank you. <laughs> the, May 8th, the big day. The big that's day. That's when you're going to see the official revenue estimates come out for the state revised. I think that's going to kind of be the starting gun for the General Assembly to really start to rev up again. I think you'll start to see finance committee meetings about the budget um, following that. I think you'll start to see more activity from the governor's office recommending what to do. And, you know, the governor said to me, I sat down with the governor last Friday night for an interview. Uh, and, and I said to her, you know, are you going to put a whole new budget in? And, and it sounded like they still almost can't get their arms around what to do because uh, the numbers are so large. So without knowing, is the federal government going to send additional money that's less restricted to COVID-19, unlike the, the money that they've gotten so far, that makes a big difference. If not, they're looking at, at, at very large cuts that I think they're still in some ways, they are talking about it, but, but are, are hard to swallow. Let's stick with the State House, but on a different topic. Our colleague Eli Sherman had filed an Access to Public Record Act request, which is the state law that governs public records, uh, and he eventually filed a complaint against the JCLS, which, Ted, as you know, is the administrative arm of the General Assembly, chaired by House Speaker Nicholas Mattiello. The Attor Attorney General's Office this week found that the JCLS did, in fact, violate the pub public records law 
for their stated reason as to why they refused to give Channel 12 a document related to an unauthorized audit of the convention center ordered by House Speaker Nick Mattiello. This is all very complicated. We go into it in a shared byline by you and I on WPRI.com. But the truth was, uh, as the complaint unearthed, the document didn't exist in the first place. Ted, what's your analysis of all of this? Well, look, I think the easiest, the easiest way for viewers to think about it is it was a waste of everyone's time. Mm. Our time at Channel 12, the Attorney General's office time, even the time of the lawyers for Speaker Mattiello. You know, Eli put in his request for this list of, of, of problems at the convention center that allegedly motivated the speaker to do the audit. Uh, instead of just saying, you know, oh, there's no list or there's no list on paper, it's all in his head or, or however they would explain it, uh, they denied Eli's request. He filed, as reporters do, a public records request saying that's a public document, please share it. They deny that. Eli goes to the AG's office. They start to fight him at the AG's office. They ask for extensions citing coronavirus to keep fighting it. And then finally they say, there is no list, there's no document, you know, we're fighting over a phantom document. It, it's just, you know, it's a waste of time. I actually heard from some folks who thought that they should have fined the JCLS um, just because it's, you know, stringing people along rather than just being up front saying there's no physical document here is bad behavior. But it's also a reminder, Tim, of, you know, before COVID-19, there was a lot of coverage of that grand jury investigation into this audit. And that is still hanging out there, even though the grand jury hasn't been meeting. Yeah, and I spoke with the Attorney General, Peter Narona, about that. And he said number one on his list right now is to try and figure out how to get a grand jury to reconvene. And, you know, he wasn't talking specifically about the convention center investigation. There are a lot of capital crimes that have to go through the machinery of the indictment process. Um, and so he is eager to get that uh, back up and running. And we'll all have to see uh, how that one plays out, um, you know, in the coming days. So uh, no timeline from the attorney general on that one, Ted. And he also told me while they did not decide to find the JCLS, they did put the JCLS on notice, so if this happens again, they might think twice about that one. Ted Nisi, thank you so much for joining us once again live from the Rhode Island State House. We'll see you again next week. For everybody here at Newswe Newsmakers, thanks for watching, and we'll see you next week on Newsmakers.